Good day, good evening, and good streaming. I am Jello Biafra, and we are once again on Renegade Roundtable. Tonight's Gab Fest is going to be with a very good friend of mine I've known for many, many, many years, like since 82 or 83. Originally came out of the Chicago hardcore scene, and after we'd played shows with people connected with the original effigy scene and some of the other folks like that he was like hey there's other people here too come to this party and this party turned out to be a giant loft floor in a set of flats and that was their practice room and they all played as though they were playing for 100 a thousand people only uh, i was right there like whoa i wasn't expecting this there's plenty of people wanting to tell me about their band this is cool but i wasn't expecting this so then next time we played with articles of faith and we did again and then we did again and uh and then after that there were some other bands we will get to including report suspicious activity which we did on alternative tentacles as well as some of the Articles of Faith reissue stuff and things like that, which hopefully is going to come back out real soon, by the way. We finally get money to repress these things. Hope, hope, hope. And uh, current band out of Seattle is Red Shift, who may wind up getting mixed up with us too. The reason he leapfrogged over a lot of other people connected with friendship and past and musical uh, art crimes together and apart is he was lobbying me. You got to have me on. We got to have me on. Somebody needs to talk about AI. Ah, what relief I felt because people are like, what do you think of AI? Well, Joe, what do you think of AI? I don't think of AI. I don't even understand that much of it. And I've seen so many diverging opinions, mostly terrified of it, but not all of them. I'm not sure what my own opinion is. So on that note, please welcome, direct from the tech world, but not an asshole, Vic Bondi. How do you do? Hello, hello. Good to see you. Always. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You said you had the Santa beard on. That's actually becoming fashionable now. It's like, you know, people our age, either they got that or they shave their heads, they're covered with tattoos, and they play in metal bands in Portland with two-foot-long beards. But yeah. uh, exactly. I don't do any of that. I mean, if I could grow hair, I probably wouldn't have a beard, but it's not an option for me. So, And I don't play metal. I play I play surf and garage and punk, but I don't play metal. Interesting you'd mentioned garage because, uh, well, let's let's go back to the beginning here. What created you? <laughs> well, uh, I, I'm, I'm sure it was a romantic night in Hawaii, right? My, my parents met in Hawaii and uh, I was conceived and born there. So I would imagine it was some sunlit evening on Waikiki Beach in Honolulu. And was your father, he was Navy, right? Yeah, he was in the Navy. My dad was in the Navy for 30 years. Uh, He met my mother. My mother also came from a military family. Her father, or her stepfather, well, her father too. Her father was in the Army Air Corps. He was at Hickam Field when the Japanese bombed it. Uh, And um, then her stepfather was also in the Air Force and met my dad when my father was on uh, maybe his second station as a as an ensign in Hawaii. And, uh, you know, then my dad was in the military for 30 years. He he went from ensign to captain. He was a he was the executive officer of NAS Corey Field, which is the electronic warfare training center for the United States in Pensacola, Florida. So he had a. A lot of number, a lot of men under his command at one point, and he was an, an intelligence officer. So he uh, 
he got a medal for figuring out how to find Russian submarines in the Atlantic. And I went to the National Security Agency headquarters in Fort George Meade, Maryland, and the Secretary of the Navy gave him a medal. But Dad would not talk about the spooky stuff because he wasn't supposed to. So I found out stuff about what he did after he died because I got his medals and I got his I got some dossier from the military that my mother had. I didn't know he had been in Vietnam and he told me weird stuff like he he told me that naval intelligence at one time had been involved in the uh, Trujillo takeover in the Dominican Republic in 65 and the takeover or the take down take down yeah Trujillo. that's yeah. what I thought yeah. He was in the Guinness Book of World Records for making the most statues of himself, of any world leader in any country of any size. And finally, even we had had enough of him. Well, I'm glad you're doing this instead of doing a Stuart Copeland type podcast about how wonderful your father, Miles Jr. was when he was way high in the CIA under several presidents. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Overthrew democracy in Iran, overthrew democracy in Guatemala, blah, 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 blah. My dad was great. So I think that my father being in the military was a good basis for me becoming a punk because the, the weird thing is if you grow up in a military household, you have... You know, my father, like other military men, very strict, very authoritarian, um, you know, would present himself as an authority figure. But then the lived experience that you would have is every two weeks you would move or every two years you move. Right. Whether you wanted to or not. And when you're a kid, you don't want to move because you have friends and whatnot. And you had to anyway. So the, the dissonance there is that as powerful as your father may appear to be, somebody else is always telling him what to do. And so intrinsically you become very skeptical of authority as a consequence of that. At the same time, it sounds like he had a lot of people under his command and really important high-pressure jobs, and you had that too in later life. Not everybody can be in charge of as many people as you have been in the straight world. So maybe you got some of that instinctively from him. But the most interesting thing you told me before about your time growing up, especially in Pensacola and all, was you didn't really listen to or like rock music or uh, rock and roll until right before you decided you decided to play music and you decided you wanted to play punk. That is very unusual. Yeah, I, my, my, my parents, you know, because dad was, dad was pretty damn conservative. As he, as he got older, he evolved quite a bit. But in, in, when in his youth, he was pretty conservative on, on, on some things. On some things he wasn't. I mean, you know, it's, there's this, there's this interesting life arc that a lot of a lot of white people had in the 1960s where as even if they were conservative later on in the early 60s even people like Charleston Charlton Heston were fans of civil rights or part of the civil right. rights movement right? right and my parents were like that too but the you know he was pretty conservative in a lot of ways especially about issues of war and peace and force and um, so we didn't have a lot of music in our household growing up we just didn't and I got a C in an English class in seventh grade, and for my father, that was unacceptable. So he banned me from all diversions and entertainments, with the exception of a, a little tiny transistor radio that I had. And uh, I could listen to this one radio station in Baltimore, Maryland, because uh, we were stationed in, in D.C. at the time. I started listening to soul music, Stevie Wonder, Temptations, Spinners, Marvin Gaye. Uh, and that was the first music that really turned me on. And um, then when we moved to Pensacola, you know, I would hear whatever was on the radio. And I heard uh, 
I heard this song band on the run. I was, I was working at Kentucky fried chicken and I told this guy I worked with, I'm like, you know, I really like that song band on the run. That's a pretty cool song. He's like, Oh, you'd really like his first band, the Beatles. And I was like, Oh really? I never heard of them. Do you have any records you'd recommend? You know? <laughs> and how old were you by then? I was 16, 17. And, uh, you know, it was right when punk was breaking. So I, right. I, I, I jumped into classic rock at the same time that I jumped into punk because they hit around the same time in Pensacola. You, you couldn't, well, you couldn't get, um, you couldn't get any punk records right away in Pensacola, but I think in 77 or 78, we, they started to seep into town. So we, the Bullocks, never mind the Bullocks came in, save them, uh, give them enough rope by the clash came in road to ruin by the Ramones came in. This is the modern world by the jam television's first record which god damn that is still for me like just an amazing record um they it all started filtering in. and so i had this weird experience of kind of getting into music uh classic rock you know the who the stones the beatles at the same time i'm listening to the ramones the jam and the clash right it was very um it was strange <laughs> and, <laughs> and at the same time being a huge fan of soul music which i couldn't play to save my life and i wouldn't even try i mean it was it was great like Learning Beatles and Ramones songs, that was pretty easy, but like... You already had a guitar? Uh, yeah, I, I I bought... I don't know why I decided to buy, uh, play guitar, but I, I saved up and saved up. I worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I, I, got a, a, I got an Epiphone Les Paul copy, man, and I had this... An electric guitar, no less. Yeah, I had Did this... Did you play other this, instruments? Did you play other instruments before guitar? No clue. No, no idea. It wasn't... You know, they, we didn't have music classes or any of that stuff. And I, I had this busted stereo in my house where I could actually plug my guitar in. It would, it would play the guitar through the stereo. So I could put on those records and then I could play along with the bands. And that's how I learned how to play guitar. So like there's records like the first television album, like road to ruin. This is the modern world where I know every single riff because that's how I learned how to play guitar. That is not easy with television. Oh yeah, I mean, uh, and and even today, there's still some parts of the uh, Richard Lloyd leads where I think I'm cheating. I'm not really sure I'm doing them the right way. Yeah, I don't really know which are his and which are Verlaine's, even after seeing them live a couple times, about thirty, thirty-five years apart. Yeah, I think Verlaine's are Verlaine's are more. He's got the melodic leads. They're a lot easier. They're really simple to play. The, the Lloyd ones are the ones where he does the pull-offs and then he'll move back up the neck. And When I saw them in 78, they were much more of a, now what would be called a jam band live than they are on the records. So there was a lot of guitar stuff going on. And people were also marveling at the size of Tom Verlaine's hands because <laughs> he had very big hands with very long fingers, but managed to get them curled around to play like only he could. Yeah, I've seen him. Tw- I've seen him twice. I never... I- I never saw them with um, Lloyd. I saw the I saw the revisited bands that Verlaine put together. I I took my daughter the fr- to see them uh, the first time at the Moore Theater in Seattle, and they were amazing. I mean, I just I think the thing is, you know, that record Marky Moon is so close to my heart. I, I was just crying with joy when he played Marky Moon live. It was amazing. 
Yeah, that's become a more emotional one for me. Like some things when you think back at different parts of your life when you get to be this age, even songs you hated as a kid bringing you to tears now and stuff like that. But, all, uh, all sorts of cheesy in, 70s. Imagined by John Lennon, which I never hated, but never liked. But now, oh my God. But the Marky Moon also for me, last time I realized is because I was already, you know, starting to pull out of a seriously suicidal teenage depression more because of punk than because of any kind of counseling or anything but also punk and new wave were interchangeable terms at the time it was blowing the doors out of all this what had become the new establishment in 70s rock and disco and adult rock and country rock whose ground zero epicenter was the greater denver area and whatnot but anyway um but when television came out, there was hype on me. Yeah, new wave, punk, whatever. At that point, no two of the bands sounded the same. Mm-hmm. You know, a pair Ubu single had found its way to a Boulder record store, too. It was like, oh, my God, anything is possible again. And with Marky Moon, it was like, this is the beginning of something very, very, very special and important. Not just television, but What's going to be after this now? Mm-hmm. And I'm right on the ground floor. Even as just a fan, I'm not born too late. I was born at the perfect time where people like me could actually get on stage too. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what it was about that singular moment. It was very exciting. Uh, you know, the the early hardcore scene, as you know, also had that kind of openness, right? There, there was not. There wasn't. There wasn't a generic style of punk or hardcore in its in its incept. There were. It was an attitude, and it was also uh, a willingness to explore sonic boundaries and conventions that hadn't been done before. I mean, you guys, man, the. the the, the thing you were so subversive and you were so fun. I mean, like the Kennedys between the surf rock stuff that you were doing with all the trash stuff on top. And then your antics, Mr. Antic, it was just fucking, it was, it was a great fucking great time. That time I was at that show that you guys played at DC uh, in 1984 and you were up on the stage on the mall. Rocket against Reagan. Rocket against Reagan. And I was in yeah, the audience. Yeah, yeah. And oh. and you, you I'll never forget it. You 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 paused at one time and the Washington Monument is up there. And at night, the monument has these two red, red dots at the top that make it look like eyes. And you're like, there it is, the great Klansman in the sky. <laughs> Yeah, I think I put that in Stars and Stripes of Corruption the next year, too. Oh, yeah. You can't look at it any other way. Yeah. I mean, the, the other real memorable things about that show, there were many, including Ian McKay freaking out when the police were starting to mass and stuff pointing out that the D.C. police and the D.C. underground people that he was affiliated with got along and understood each other, but the park police were another matter. And if anything happens in my town, it's on you! And, and, and part of it was because Doc from the Crucifix saw some of the park police, or maybe it was the D.C. police, hey you! You in the baby blue uniforms! Fuck you! And several other things to try to egg them on into the crowd. I was like, no, Doc, no! I know how much you love to do this in your hometown, but this is not Lansing and there's not a rubber room for them to put you in when you, they arrest you and stuff. 
Anyway, luckily, no violence, but the real telling one for me, too, have some great performances, Crucifox, and DRI played, MDC played, of course, Toxic Reasons, and even um, the Velvet Monkeys with Don Fleming in it played, too. I'd never heard of them before. They were rocking against Reagan. That was Gumball later, and now he works. Last heard from the, at the Lomax Archives in New York, which is an Alan Lomax, an amazing, amazing place. Anywho, um, the other really big memory of that show, and somewhere there's videos of the whole damn thing that have never come out. But anyway, at one point while we're playing, a helicopter comes down really low on the crowd. And of course, it's a black helicopter. After all, you look up at helicopters in the sky, especially at night, what color do they all look black? That's a conspiracy if I've ever thought of one. But anyway, <laughs> um, they floodlit the crowd. Everybody looked up at once. Boom. Everybody was on camera and they had everybody's faces. And I can't remember what I yelled at the chopper pointing that out to the audience. And oh my God, they've, they've got all our faces now. You know, even then, without the kind of recognition they have today, they were doing stuff like that just in preparations in case they decided to go hunting for punk rockers if we ever got as politically powerful as say uh the sds or mm -hmm. my beloved pranksters abby hoffman and the yippies and whatnot i always I always like pranks i still try to at least live some of my life and my art is one big prank against corporate dictatorship and corporate society that i despise so much in a way of keeping me from completely giving up and going insane because of it by then you were in articles of faith punk rock you were playing shows were you going to school at the same time were you going to college yet or well I, so i dropped out of college <laughs> that was a well let, let's go back just a sec from pensacola to dc and soul music somehow you left home and i'm assuming you left home to go to college at first was it in chicago or did you go to chicago later and if on both things like that what prompted you to go where you did yeah so i i graduated from high school in pensacola and then I didn't, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I was kind of lost and my dad had decided to kind of write me off. And, uh, uh, I don't, well, that's maybe a little bit harsh. I mean, he just, were you an only child? No, no, I have a sister. <laughs> yeah. My sister's something, man. And she, my sister was a huge fixture in the punk rock scene. She, cause when my, when I left Pensacola to go to DeKalb, Illinois, to go to college, um, my, my sister moved back to DC with my parents. Cause then dad got stationed back at headquarters again. Uh, so then Tony, my sister got involved in the DC punk scene and she met, uh, all the, you know, all the minor threat guys, scream guys. And that's actually how I met them because when I would come out, uh, even before I was in articles of faith, uh, when I came out to DC and to see my parents, Tony would take me into the nine thirty club. And then that's where I met. I saw the bad brains there the first time. Uh, I saw, nice. uh, faith there. I saw void at the, um, Oh, Wilson Center. Actually, I still have a Wilson Center poster up here. I'm, I, I'm sure they played there several times, but I was at a Void Faith show at the Wilson Center once, too. Yeah. But we knew each other by then. We would have known each other by then. Yeah, I think we met in like, I think we I met in like 1982, like summer of 82 yeah. or something, right? Yeah, I do believe that was it. Yeah. yeah. My Wilson Center there was later. I was just really impressed with the singer of Void and this unique little coiled snake stage presence that he had and stuff. I loved Void. I thought Void was oh, just yeah. such a rad band, man. Um, <laughs> well, they were, Void was one of the first bands to really go after noise, right? So, you know, there were all these, there were all these aesthetic principles that rock and roll had introduced into pop music. 
And, and what American hardcore did even more than the original hardcore movement, um, what that the 81, the 79 to 81 movement that you really were a leader in is it, it just, it started to take the conventions of rock and roll and just take them to 11. Right. I mean, uh, you know, some of them were speed. I mean, speed was a big one. Uh, how fast could you play? And another one was noise. You know, how abrasive and noisy and shrill could your music, how unlistenable could it possibly be? Right. And so these were the kinds of principles that a lot of bands aesthetically embraced in that very, you know, exciting moment where they were exploring that stuff. And, and Void was one of the best bands to go after noise. They just, those guitars were outrageous, man. It was fantastic. Well, what made, made them so fierce in a different kind of scattershot blasting way than the other DC bands was, I think, I'm not, I don't think they planned this, but they were just a little more out of control or on the verge of going off the rails all the time and weren't worried about it and they didn't care. They just did it. Yeah. And it was a little bit different thing than the other bands. Yeah. No, I mean that, that that's exactly right. Cause a lot of DC bands, they were really about control, right? Like, um, you know, uh, of course the bad brains, they were just such exquisite musicians that everything was right. super tight and controlled, but also minor threat, yeah. you know, that whole, um, uh, Lyle Presslar guitar sound, man, they, they just, they just, they were really tight and they were controlled, right? So that when Ian would come up with that, those, those howls, um, it had really effective force because they were so controlled. But the, the other bands, you know, like Void, um, they were mining stuff that other, you know, where chaos was your friend and very close by, right? So, um, yeah, it was great. I mean, the, th the thing that separated Minor Threat was, you know, when bands were playing more and more fast, the point was turning into polka beats and stuff. Yeah. They had a thing, plus a great drummer, Jeff Nelson, with a guitar and Lyle's guitar and sometimes Brian's bass to go with it would be halftime with the drums. Instead of trying to be being as fast, it was draped on halftime with the drums so you could do power chords more and sustain more. And I trace that and even Ian's Fugazi guitar sound to a band that those guys grew up on that I'm not sure either of us did. There were some that came slightly later, like Judas Priest and mainly Iron Maiden, but mainly with them, complete with the, you know, the, the Gibson SG guitars, all that good stuff was ACDC. Yeah. There's a lot of ACDC in Minor Threat, and even in Fugazi, especially early Fugazi and Waiting Room and that kind of thing. That, that, that's, you know, there's a lot of ACDC, which made it all the funnier before we move on here, that, um, that at that Wilson Center show, hanging out outside, probably in between Faith and Void or whatever, and both Lyle and Brian separately came up to me. Yeah, what to eat this ACDC show last night or the night before. I couldn't believe how many people that I knew were there sounding all disgusted. Both of them did. And they said, yeah, and you were too, weren't you? Yeah. But uh, that was what made that what it was. But meanwhile, um, so you... You went, you left home and first you went where? I went to, I went to DeKalb, Illinois. So my, my uncle Jim, he lived in Elmhurst, Illinois, and he was, uh, he, he was a college professor at Triton Junior College in Illinois. And so uh, he kind of took pity on me wandering through my uh, new adulthood, not knowing what to do. Cause my dad, 
my dad's attitude was you can go in the military or you can get out. Right. Like he didn't, that was kind of my option. And so since I right. didn't choose the military, you know, I was like, there was a time there. I was, I, I, I did this whole run at uh, working on the rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. And, and then I saw the films of the rigs going up on fire and I was talking to some roughneck and he was like, Oh yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the, it's like the, 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 as hot as the sun, when those things go up, man, and all you can do is get in the, get in the water and all the oil's coming down and superheated in the water too. And I'm like, okay, I'm not going to work on the rigs. And, uh, uh, so my uncle took pity on me and he found me, uh, a slot at Northern Illinois university in DeKalb. So I went up there and I did, uh, about two years there, and uh, I formed a punk band up there. You know, there was there was not no punk scene really there, but there was a, a band. How close Chicago. is it to Chicago? How close it's is it? It's about 75, 80 miles west of oh, Chicago. So, yeah. So people could go into Chicago for shows, too. Yeah, we, we did. And we did, right? Like the, the, the very first show I saw when I moved to DeKalb is I went into Chicago and I saw the clash at the Aragon Ballroom. And it just oh it totally changed my life. I mean, I, I, I had my surfer hair from Pensacola. And uh, after I saw the clash, I shaved my head. I'm like, that's it. I'm getting in a punk band. And so I get Vic into- had a mullet. Vic had a mullet. I didn't. I didn't have a mullet. I had like that. That you know, the feathered, feathered hair. Oh thing. yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, yeah. So I got into a punk band out there. There was another punk band out there that you do know called the Subverts. They were from Sycamore, which was right down huh. the street from DeKalb. So uh, my band, Direct Drive in the Sycamore and um the subverts we would go over to uh greg cress's basement the guitar player and subverts and we'd play we would play for them and they would play for us because there wasn't any other audience for it so that was pretty <laughs> fun and we would i mean we would do and, and at, at that point you know i'm still playing covers like blondie covers and sex pistols covers and uh so then um which blondie songs one way or another i don't think we played any other blondie song just that one but like i mean visualizing you covered blondie is something that's going to keep me awake at night yeah yeah you thought i was doing heart of glass right (laughs) (laughs) no i wasn't sure but uh actually that would be great if you covered it you should cover that well, the best cover of Heart of Glass is Michael Board's parody off the Michael Board art record and stuff. Yeah. Can't oh. remember all the words. It's it's really, really good. I mean, but again, you know, for me it was all it was all one big gumbo. I know um, one thing about the one thing that wasn't so cool about the early hardcore scene was uh it it, it was and this is, goes back to your story about ACDC and the D, and the DC guys. They couldn't admit that they were ACDC fans because it was uncool to like any mainline band you know then you were then you just sucked if you like the mainline band so yeah except you went to a party at about anybody anybody's house except maybe henry's and whatnot you'd find all those records and stuff i noticed that in chicago we came out in 81 you didn't see priest and maybe maiden and acd and others in people's record collections you saw all stooges or johnny cash a lot of bowie people i was one Maybe one of those. You get the point. There was not a lot of that. Like, okay, this is the redefining of another generation. This is stuff that they that got them there that did not get us there and yeah. stuff. I mean, in the Articles of Faith van, the most played music for sure was Johnny Cash by far. It was the stuff that we could all agree on because 
a lot of stuff we couldn't agree on, but we could all agree on Johnny Cash. Remember when you went to Europe years later with a reunited AOF and you put my Tumor Circus album on in the van and they're all, that's just noise. Tear that shit off. Of all your projects, that's still that's still one of my favorites. I love that. Record. Yeah, mine and two. And believe it or not, Al Jorgensen recently told me he really dug that one, too. Yeah, you know, Jorgensen used to practice right next to us in, in Chicago. We uh, there was a when we when we first started playing in Chicago, there was this uh, slaughterhouse in the old stockyard district, and the slaughterhouse had been decommissioned. And what they had done is they had taken all the meat freezers and they had turned them into practice spaces. And so you you would go into oh, like the vats in San Francisco that some people started living in yeah. too. They were completely airless. There was no, you know, you would you would access the room through those big refrigerator doors, and the the rooms, you know, were like the walls were like four three three feet four feet thick, and it was stifling. Once you were in there, there was no air circulation. And um, but we practiced there, and right next door was Ministry in their in their new romantic incarnation. So we were in there playing, trying to figure out thrash and and play fast and. He was next door in like, uh, he, I remember him having those um, little frilly gloves. He did that for a while. <laughs> no. Yeah. I don't think I've seen that one. Yeah. I mean, there's some 12 inches off the With Sympathy album that only came out in England, I think. And he is such a cutie pinup boy on yeah. those pictures yeah. and stuff. Yeah, he took a run not. at that. And then I don't know. <laughs> you know, Adam without the ants, only he was a little better looking and he knew it and yeah. stuff. But I uh, like to think that anywho. he heard us through the walls. And that's that's how he made his way out of that new romantic phase. Well, he, the, the, if you listen to Renegade Roundtable, the premiere one with Al on it, his, his the way he arrived in and out of that, you know, he had a heavy side from the beginning, but then he didn't use it for a long time. And I knew he had it up his sleeve. And I was so glad when Palehead came out. Oh my God, he's doing it now. Cool, lard after that. But anyway, um, so I see you play in that loft. And yeah, it was fast. It was, it was not strict hardcore thrash tempo. Plus there was not just two guitars. But when we played with you, maybe a year later at the Metro, from at times there was three guitars, so it was uh, articles of Skinner, and you were the third guitar player. Well, well, what had happened was when and it was it, clearly there was more texturing and clash isms and other stuff that went into Articles of Faith that did not go into some of the other bands nation, nationwide or worldwide, which may have partly been what drew Bob Mould to you and produce your albums later, or you were drawn to him and Husker too, I'm sure. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I don't, I don't, I, I can't even remember the first time I met Bob and I, I, I can remember the first time I saw Husker Du. I, the first time I saw Husker Du uh, was at O'Banion's bar in Chicago in maybe 81 or 80, early 82. And it was 
it was really cold. It must, must have been like minus six or minus 10 degrees outside. And the cold had was penetrating this dive bar in a big way. The These two bands from Minneapolis came down, the replacements and, and Husker Du, and everybody's like, we should go see these bands. So we went and the replacements played first and Westerberg's got these cowboy boots on. And the first song out of, out of the band is Hey, Good Looking by Hank Williams. I'm like, but it's completely wired up. It's like hyper fast. And I'm like, wow, what's this? Then the, the Hooskers came on after them and it was the land speed record phase. So it was right. just, a, just a sonic wall. I mean, it was just, <laughs> and, and somebody was screaming and screaming and I couldn't, I, it took me like two songs to realize it was the drummer who was behind the other two and this guy with this ridiculous fucking mustache jumping around. And I'm like, what is this? <laughs> Are you sure Greg had the mustache that early? I don't remember seeing that until 85 or 84. Oh, or he had it before 85 or 84, but you, huh. you're, you're, it's quite, it's quite possible. I've got it wrong. It seems, but I do remember, I do remember, I don't remember when Bob and I talked about gay or what, but like, I remember after Bob told me he was gay and Grant was like, <laughs> Grant was everything. And, uh, I, I'm like, well, the one guy who looks gay in the band is the only straight guy in the band. I remember being because of the mustache. Right. So I don't know when he had the mustache first. We'd have to ask Greg, but yeah, I, th I think it came late, came later. And that was a time. Cause they stayed at my house every time they came through as a Husker hotel. Yeah. And Bob and I would trade tapes of bands or Husker demos and whatnot and stuff like that and do a bunch of dubbing and, catching up and i eventually one time i named i renamed them all and so there was moldy bob magnum suave for greg which bob thought was hilarious and i couldn't i had i grant got two of them it was either grunt heart pants or golf goat because golf goat made absolutely no sense and d boone was their roadie tour guy on that particular time they came through so i named him senator furniture and he was the one like your cat slept on my head again <laughs> senator furniture huh that's great that's great he, he loved it he loved it anyway so articles of faith grows goes national eventually international we even cross paths that apparently what is now a legendary gig and maybe even a benefit thing at the rutgers university campus in um camden across the river from philadelphia which was not exactly a calm place to be although then there was the campus and whatnot and coc corrosion conformity was yeah. there you played yeah. seems to me there were some others too and a little bit different thing you were trying to do as bands or sometimes recasting themselves or whatever was that 85 or 84 i don't remember Somewhere in there. Probably 80, 80. Well, I, it might have been, eight, I, I don't know. I don't remember whether it was 84, 85. Yeah. 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 The tempo was pulled back a little bit. And either you or somebody closer, you're like, yeah, Vic's gotten really into Creedence Clearwater Revival now. And you had a white sh button shirt, unbuttoned, long sleeved, and a little bit more. You know, I don't know whether it was it was as blatantly trying to get a little bit Springsteen like Jesse Mallon did with that band Hope he had after Har 
heart attack, which was a similar kind of look and things. And the, but uh, what do you remember about that? Or am I am I am I oh, completely I, off show base, was, based show on was, that show was mad. rumors at the time? At the time, it was that that show was in the one of the top ten shows I've ever played for sure. Just because the audience was just insane. I mean. That there was, it was a high energy show, and we all fed on, off of it. No question there. I mean, the, there's just that constant parade of guys. I just kept ducking because guys were like coming <laughs> over my head constantly. Right? Yeah, that was that was an incredible show. Uh, that that definitely was one of the top ten shows I've ever played in my life. Really phenomenal night. That's that's most of what I remember about that night. I remember all the bands were on fire too. Uh, it was just it was really really a great night. The, the show I remember the most was the show we played with you guys at the Metro because after we played that show with you at the Metro, that was the show that after our set, we're, we're backstage and somebody ran to get me because guys were lifting our gear. They were stealing our gear from backstage and they were stealing it and they were yeah. taking it down the fire escape at the Metro and, they, and we caught them and then they dropped the gear. like They dropped the gear from two stories and they oh, smashed my amp oh. to bits. Uh, oh. and you took a bunch of the dead Kennedy's money and you gave it to us because our gear got jacked that night. I'll never forget that. That was really great. Was it me personally or Mike Vrainy? It was you personally. Don't tell Ray. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell Scrooge. No, 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 no. So anyway, why eventually there was no more articles of faith. Yeah. So, you know, the thing was, I, I feel like, I feel like Articles of Faith could have been a bigger band than they actually were because there was the bands that went on to fame and fortune that were from the Midwest. So Husker Du, Soul Asylum, uh, Ministry. You know, one thing that those bands had in common was they went on the road and they stayed on the road and they never left until they were famous. Right. And so they had this absolute commitment to the craft they would they would play anywhere they would sleep anywhere they would eat anything to get that music out and articles of faith lacked that commitment because we lacked that commitment uh, by 85 i felt like now this this isn't going to work uh, i'm going to go to graduate school so so you already had a degree then yeah uh, well i got my i got my undergraduate so i dropped out of college to do our articles of faith and then i went back to college midway through through the the band's career i i when when i was my day job for a while i was working on this rehab crew in chicago and i had this epiphany one day carrying a hundred pound sheet of drywall up a four flights of stairs and i'm like I don't want to keep doing this shit for the rest of my life. So I went back to school uh, and then I graduated in 85, but like in the, in the, what school was this? What was your major? Uh, University of Illinois at Chicago. And I, oh. I was the only school I could afford because I was, I was paying for it myself and uh, I was paying for it by working in the, in the day and then going to school at night. I majored in history. I decided then in, 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 I think the, in the end of 1984, I decided to quit articles of faith. And I told the guys, and then, of course, we do a couple more tours in 85, and they're phenomenal. I mean, we have really good shows. I think that the Camden show was on it, but we had an amazing show at the Channel. We had an amazing show in Atlantic City with De Kreutzen. We had a great show with De Kreutzen at the Peppermint Lounge in New York. So, of course, I tell the guys I'm quitting, and then we start playing these gigs, and they're really great. But I'd already made my commitment, so that was the end of that. And I went to Boston. I went to grad school. Boston U? 
Yeah, BU. Yeah. Boston University. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> A PH fucking D, no less. Well, I was Howard Zinn's t- teaching assistant, dude. Wow. Yeah. I never knew that one. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I had a, I had a, I had a really good experience there um, with Howard. There were some other people. I, I there was this uh, Israeli guy Ben Ovizer Verone, and he and I team taught. He he was a really impressive figure too. Um, my my dissertation advisor David Hall was a really impressive man. Is a really impressive man. I think I, it was. I think the exciting thing about going to BU uh, was you know it was the poor man's Harvard. And um, I mean, David ended up becoming the theology dean at at, at the Harvard Divinity School. So the, the academics were on par and it was super challenging. I mean, I'd, I'd never had that experience. I mean, school was something that came really easy to me. And but graduate school didn't. It was the first time where I was definitely challenged and I was I was in over my skis a lot. I had to work hard. Um, were you doing Jones Very, your next band at the same time or was that? Before or after? No, I took a bit of a pause, right? I did I did the solo album. I did the ghost dances. Right, um, right. I did it down at Don Z and Tara's studio, the inner ear in DC, because it's all acoustic. But after that, I, I didn't play for about two years, three years, because uh, I couldn't. I, not the, the level of difficulty that I had at school was pretty profound. So I didn't play any music. I, I got back into Jones Very in 89. So at that point, I had I had three or four years. I'd already gotten my master's. I was on my doctorate. Um, I'd probably finished my classes and that, then and and I and had probably taken my qualifying exams at that point. Then I had the time that I could put back into music, and so then then I did get back into music, and I did Jones Ferry uh, in Boston. We did um, I don't know. We were together for like three years, three years, four years. We did four or five albums. I don't I don't remember wow. the totality. I think I have one or two. I ran into over the years and thought they were really good. Where did the name Jones Very come from? He was a transcendentalist poet. He was a friend of Emerson's and he was pretty fucking insane. So he was this, he was this guy that constantly had that circle Thoreau and Emerson and, and uh, that, that class of people wondering about the limits of rationality and reason because he was definitely on the other side of it. And so I kind of like that, but you know, in truth, it was a pretty obscure reference. I don't know that many people got yeah. it. Well, to some of us, so was Articles of Faith. And you haven't mentioned if you're actually raised Catholic or not. What is an Article of Faith? Uh, so I... Or at I, least why the name? <laughs> well, you know, the Articles of Faith is a big deal in Mormonism. Um, but oh. I, I... And I'm not Mormon. Uh, I wasn't. I wasn't really raised in a religious tradition. I was baptized Methodist and... Uh, as a as a boy, uh, I was baptized Methodist, even though you know I'm from an Italian family. And um, my my father, his his parents, his dad was a pure Sicilian immigrant. His mother was a, a, a first generation Irish woman. So you know they were raised Catholic, but dad converted to Methodism. And I asked my dad once, I'm like, I, I thought because I was studying religion in graduate school, I thought he must have had some profound life experience. You know, Jesus came to him and said, you know, get out of this popery and jump in with the Methodists. And, <laughs> and, and dad's like, no, they had the better baseball league and I really wanted to play baseball. So. <laughs> so it wasn't just, you know, hearing clairvoyantly for the future song by fish karma, baby, let's be Methodists tonight. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
No, so articles. So an article of faith is exactly, but what is it? What is it? What it, is it? it isn't anything. So I, it was an article of faith is something that you have great belief in, and you it's unquestioned for you, right? And so uh, I had written a song called Articles of Faith, and we and we were looking to kind of rebrand. Direct Drive, the band that I had started in DeKalb, had moved. Part of us had moved to Chicago, and uh, so me and Joe Scuderi, the guitar player, had moved to Chicago. And then that's where we met Dave Shield and um, Bill Richmond, Virus X, who was our drummer. We we initially started playing as Direct Drive, and then as the song as the music started to evolve its own shape and form, it didn't seem like it was a good representative of what we were doing. So I had written a song called Articles of Faith, and then we thought that would be a cool name for a band, and that's how it happened. And I think yeah. some of the um, some of the unconventionality of Articles of Faith as a band is really directly because it is a I mean, I think the records hold up really well if you listen to them now because they, they, they really don't have a kind of generic hardcore sound to them. And a lot of that has to do with Bill and Dave because they were just such an indescribably awesome rhythm section. And, and Bill, all he did is listen to funk and R&B, right? So Interesting. He, yeah, he was just bringing that funk to every beat, whether it was hyperspeed or not, you know? And... um. So were you mainly writing the tunes and the lyrics as well, or was there others in AOF and Jones Vary who did that? So in all of the bands that I've been in, I, I'm usually the main songwriter. Um, but for me as a musician, a big, a big part of the appeal, and especially in, in the new band that I'm in, Redshift, a big part of the appeal is the, is the give and take, the camaraderie that results in something different than you, you conceived of when you first had it, you know, I, I've worked with a lot of musicians who they, they get a song in their head, they map it out all the way to its nth. You know, Bob does that. Um, Jay Robbins does that. Tom Morello does that. They just, they've got the song in their head and guilty, guilty, guilty. Yeah. Guilty. You too. Right. Like, you know, they've got the song in their head. They go all the way through with it. But for me, the whole thing is even when I do write the songs, like some songs I write, We'll, we'll perform it pretty much the way I, I wrote it. But a lot of times what'll happen is I'll bring a song in and then the guys will start to twist it and bend it and make it into something that I wasn't expecting. And to me, that's, that's the real joy of the process. Uh, because then, then I get to enjoy it as though it's something brand new too. And um, I also like that give and take with folks. And, you know, in, in, the, in, in my best relationships in my, in, in my bands, that's almost a completely unconscious thing for, for, for Bill Richmond and me. When, when Bill, Bill's sisters live here in Seattle, and so when he's in town, uh, he'll come down and uh, we have our practice space right here in the house. And uh, Bill will sit down at the drums and start playing, and it's just like, boom, I'm just completely in sync with him. I, I, it's like breathing air just working with him. I'm really glad to hear that because I thought you or even he years ago had told me he was battling multiple sclerosis. Uh, that was mm -hmm. Eric, that was Eric Castle from Savage Beliefs who died of it. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Okay, so Bill is not ailing with major physical health problems. No, then. no. I mean, well, he has actually has a lot of health problems now, and he's got a lot of problems with his hands because I think some of it comes from I've never, I've never played with a musician who is so methodical about practice. I mean, AOF used to practice a lot, but Bill, 
Bill would we if we practiced three or four hours a day, Bill would practice eight. I mean, he was playing constantly. So it's busted up his hands. You know, my my daughter is a musician too, but my daughter went to school for it. And so her teachers, she's a drummer and her teachers taught her, you know, they're like, if you want to be playing when you're 90, hold your sticks this way. Like, because any other way you're going to, you know, you bust your wrists and Bill's, Bill's contending with a lot of that right now. Yeah, you, you mean the one like looks like, like more like they're holding with silverware some weird way, like John oh. Wright holds. His yeah, stick. the trad, the trad grip. Yeah, I don't. So well, which is a common jazz one. Yeah, you hardly ever see that in punk or rock, though. Yeah, I mean John Worcester from Bob Mold Band. He plays trad, but most guys don't. Yeah. Yeah, John Wright from No Means No and all. Then came another band called Alloy, and that was right around the time you and I ran into each other for the first time in way too long. And you were teaching, I believe, at University of New Hampshire. Yep, I was. And I did a spoken word show there. And I don't think I even had any place to stay. And so we just rode back to Boston in your car and talked about a lot of things to catch up. I had no idea you were this history professor or anything like that. And then I think you were doing Alloy at that point too, weren't you? Yeah, I was. Uh, so I did, I mean, after Jones Vary, I did Alloy. And Alloy was my project with... Uh, Colin Sears and Roger Marbury from Dag Nasty and Pat Mahoney uh -huh. from Uniform Choice. Oh my. And we did uh, we did three albums and did a lot of European tours. We had a lot of really good good response in Europe, so we went over there quite a bit. But I was teaching at the University of New Hampshire, as you were mentioning uh, at the time, I was teaching history there and because uh, I had already gotten my doctorate. But I was, you know, I wasn't I wasn't doing great because I, I came out, I got my doctorate in 92 and I got my first job at the University of New Hampshire as an associate professor. And I was getting paid $24,000 a year with a doctorate, right? Like, <laughs> and so I'm, I'm living in a graduate student group home. And so uh, I, I, um, I picked up these gigs writing books. Uh, so I wrote four books out of that, four history I books out of that. I about that. Yeah, you can buy them on Amazon. So I wrote these four history books. And um, I did them mostly because that was a good way to pick up extra money. What were the titles and the topics of each one? They're called American Decades. They're a reference series. They're in libraries all over the country. Um, so I did four volumes of the, it's a, it's a series that looks at American culture through the lens of decades, which is fun. So I picked up those books and I did those. And that's how I ended up at Microsoft. So... Yeah, we were about to get to that. Yeah. Um, and somehow you're this history professor. We're catching up, drinking all kinds of weird fla seasonal flavors of Samuel Adams beer. I never saw again upstairs at the Rat. Well, I totally missed Sam Blackchurch downstairs, having no idea how good they were and what amazing performer Jet is till the other time I got to see him in New York. But uh, anyway, so then. I think I didn't hear from you again, except a little bit, making sure I was listening to Ally, Alloy with you and stuff like that, till all of a sudden, there you were in Seattle, and instead of teaching history for 24 grand a year, you were in charge of a major project at Microsoft, of yeah. all things. Yeah. And for that, we're going to go to part two. So until then, as Winston Smith would say, don't get lost or killed. <laughs>